Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. One of the things that a lot of people have been trying to navigate in the province of Alberta lately is what exactly is going on with the provincial government, what's driving their decisions, and perhaps most importantly, what can we expect from them likely to see in the future as we continue to try to navigate an economic recovery as well as the whole situation around COVID-19. In order to get a bit of a more informed prognostication, uh, in regards to those things, we're going to somebody who's been a political commentator uh, in the province of Alberta for quite some time, but somebody who also literally teaches this stuff at the U Mount Royal University. Uh, so we're very excited to welcome to the show Dwayne Bratt, who is a political science professor at Mount Royal University in the departments of economics, justice, and policy studies. Dwayne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Nate. So to start with, let's kind of cast a, a broad net uh, and let's just sort of get a, a report card, if you will, uh, from your perspective on how the UCP has done on a, on a couple of fronts. So we'll, we'll go with what they largely campaigned on, which is the, the jobs economy pipelines. So how, are, how would you rate them if you were issuing a, if, if they submitted their, their efforts so far to you as an assignment, what score would you give them? Yeah, so before I get into to that, just a bit more on my, my personal background. So I did sure. teach, I have taught Alberta politics, uh, did it during the 2019 election campaign, which was fascinating to run a, uh, a course simultaneous with with a provincial campaign, that was that was a nice uh, way of happening. I also co-edited a book called The Orange Chinook, which was about the 2015 provincial election and the first three years of the Notley government, and that came out just before the 2019 election. Currently co-editing a book called The Blue Storm, which is about the 2019 election and the first three years of the Kenny government. We're also anticipating, because it's a peer-reviewed book, University Press, these things take a while. We hope that it will come out in the fall of 2022, just before the, the election. So that just gives us a sense of, of where I have been studying and looking at Alberta politics. So on the report card, I've had supporters of Kenny, and he has said this himself, that if you look at their platform, which was very long, uh, platform in 2019, that they've accomplished you know, 85% of what they promised to do. That's not a good metric. Uh, and I'll explain why it's not a good metric. First, it ignores COVID, which could, they could not have anticipated in 2019, but has become the story. And in fact, the, the theme of our Blue Storm book is the response to, to COVID. The other is it's about checking off boxes where they get to this 85%. So we said we'd create a war room. We've created a war room. We said that we would um, have an, uh, an inquiry into environmental groups. We're having an, an inquiry into environmental groups. There's no assessment about how successful or in, unsuccessful those have been. We are going to fire Ed Whittingham. Well, you know, Ed stepped down just before he was fired. But think about what their campaign program was, what their slogan was, jobs economy pipeline. There has not been an increase in jobs. The economy has not come back. And no pipelines are being built with the exception of the one that was purchased by the Trudeau government. So on the big items, as opposed to the aggregate, um, 
they don't have a very good record. And even in those areas where they're checking off boxes, the war room has been an embarrassment. The Allen inquiry has, has been an embarrassment. We'll see about the equalization referendum, but I don't think the premier is going to like what happens on October 18th as far as that goes. So to say, well, we fulfilled all our promises um, isn't very good. It would be as if you had a kid in elementary school and said, well, you know, um, I go to 40, you know, um, I, I hit class four to five days a week. Um, I'm doing really well in recess. Jim is going fantastic. I'm passing lunch, but math and English and science, I'm not doing so good on. I'm not sure as a parent, you would think well, that's a great report card. Yeah. Um, and, and that's you... without even discussing COVID. Oh, we're going to get to COVID. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> do you think that there's, even if, like, let's ignore COVID just for a sec. Do you think that there's a, a political risk for Mr. Kenny in that while he had, as you noted, a very extensive platform, he campaigned on a very different set of ideas publicly? I mean, the, the platform was obviously publicly available, so anybody who wanted to read it could. But the, the narrative that he spun and the story that he spun was, as you noted, about those three specific things. Do you think there's a, a significant risk to him politically for not having been able to execute the the three big things that he talked about the most, despite the fact that he has done some other things? So um, most people don't read party platforms. And quite frankly, they, they shouldn't. Uh, there, there are people who do, journalists do, I do. And that's that's probably not a good enough. That's probably good enough for most people. The purpose of a party platform is to be able to say, you know, we have a party platform. Right. And, and therefore we, we go through it. But it's what what are the themes? What are the messages that you're going for? And so, as I mentioned, economy jobs pipeline haven't been very good. He will try to say, well, look, this is because of COVID. And that's a pretty good argument. Right. That we had to go into debt to, to cover COVID. It hit the economy badly. Except Rachel Notley never got that about it was the global drop in the price of oil that hurt the Alberta economy. That was blamed on Rachel Notley. And even if people said, yeah, it, it was a global issue, but you mismanaged it, okay, you could say COVID was a global issue and you mismanaged it. So on pipelines, it's not just that you were unable to get pipelines through. You invested $1.5 billion in the Keystone pipeline that that money has been blown away and thrown away. And so you can imagine as they're running for re-election and the issue of pipelines comes up, um, the fact that they wasted one and a half billion dollars on a pipeline and the fact that the only pipeline being built, the only new expansion of a pipeline came about because of Trudeau and Notley, that's going to be a very embarrassing situation for the government when they talk about that. They railed against deficits. Uh, deficits I mean, we were running deficits pre-2015, even with the price of oil at $100 a barrel. At Stelmac ran deficits, Allison Redford ran deficits, Jim Prentice ran deficits. But it's true that the deficits did really escalate under, under Rachel Notley, and she took a lot of criticism for that. Well, those deficits have gone even higher uh, under, under Kenny. So it's tough to talk about that. And on the, on the issue of jobs, even pre-COVID, so let's talk February of 2020, government had been there almost a year. They hadn't been able to bring jobs back. And that 
is in due to some part that there aren't a whole lot of things governments can do to increase jobs uh, or to, to decrease jobs. They can create conditions so they drop the corporate tax rate to, to increase investment. But the investment was all supposed to be in uh, oil and gas. So they stripped away some tax credits for um, high tech. They stripped away tax credits for the arts. Then about a year and a half later, they tried to reinstitute those. Well, why would I invest in that through a tax credit scheme if I don't trust the government from, for getting rid of those a year, a year later? So there's some real inconsistencies in the message. Essentially, the message was oil and gas was the past. It's the present, it's the future, and that's where we're going to put our resources in. We are going to try to fight back on behalf of our key sector. We're going to fight Trudeau. We are going to fight John Horgan. We are going to fight Quebec. We're going to fight Joe Biden. We're going to fight environmental groups. We're going to fight investors who have pulled money out. And we are going to yell and scream and fight, and, and they have. I don't see a whole lot of successes in that. I see a lot of fights. Uh, but I see a government with a lot of blood on their face from that fight. In fairness to them, though, um, I I have been watching for the last couple of months. I haven't I haven't seen a single Bigfoot in Alberta, uh, so that, I think we have to give them that one. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> um, okay, so with all of all of that. Uh, sort of squared away as best we can. I mean, it's an incredibly broad, broad topic, but I think that the, the theme seems to be that while they will be able to claim they have kept some of their, their promises, the, the context is what's really going to get them, get them into trouble. Is that a fair statement? Oh yeah. If you were to quantify and take every promise as if it was equal, they got a pretty good record at implementing their promises. But if you look at the content of those promises and the delivery of those promises, there they start to get into difficulty. And you have to believe that the big issues that people voted on um, simply didn't happen, right? So you, you need more than just a quantitative analysis. You need a qualitative analysis. And voters are smart enough to be able to make that, that choice. That that raises another interesting little question when we talk about the voters, because one of the the things that we see a lot in the public conversation in regards to uh, especially Alberta is the the whole cliche paint a rock blue and and Alberta's will elect it into government. Um, if the the where do you see voters going if the let's assume he said cautiously, and I hope to get into this a little bit more in a bit, but let's assume that the UCP somehow manages to stay intact as a, a single entity heading into the next provincial election. Do you think that there's a possibility that we'll see the same kind of shift that we saw in 2015, where, where voters will, I mean, of the available options, there's really only one major one? Uh, oh yeah, I mean this. This is this is a two-party race. I've actually got a yeah. piece coming out in the Canadian Political Science Review, and 2015 started that process to a two-party system. I think 2019 really emphasized it, where the two major parties got 90% of the vote. If you look at fundraising dollars, you know um, there's a lot of discussion about the NDP being ahead of the UCP and these this and that. But if you combine their totals and then look at who is third. 
like they're receiving 95% of the, the money. Uh, I do have some sympathy for, for the Alberta party. I mean, they, they went from, you know, 3% of the vote to 10% of the vote. They had, they were present in the leadership review or the leadership debate in 2019. They ran candidates in all the party, uh, all the ridings, but they didn't win a seat. And without that seat, you don't get a voice in the legislature and then they've just been squandered. So uh, I, it really is a two-party system. But the question about, you know, if you paint a rock blue, they'll win. Let's talk about that concept because in the last federal election in Alberta, the Conservative Party dropped 15 points. 400,000 people voted less for the Conservatives than they had two years prior, and they lost three seats. Aaron O'Toole would have won more seats than Andrew Scheer if he hadn't lost seats in Calgary and Edmonton. And I think a lot of that blame of why they lost those seats can be directed at the, at the Premier. Um, you know, this isn't all about the People's Party. The People's Party jumped from two to seven. All right, that's an increase of five. The Conservatives dropped 15 points. Where'd the other 10 go? Right, that, that's a problem uh, for them. There's also, uh, it ignores the, the reality of the 2015 election where the, the NDP won. They will say, well, that's a divided right. You know, with a divided right, of course the NDP were going to win. Except there was a divided right in 2012, and the PCs formed a majority government, and the NDP got four seats, right? So something, it wasn't just a divided right. It was the fact that the NDP got 40% of the vote in 2015. So they lose in 2019, okay? But the loss that the NDP suffered in 2019 was the best performance by the NDP in any other year outside of the year that they, they won. And unlike every other previous government in this province, they were not destroyed. So the history of Alberta up until the last couple of years has been, we elect a government, they stay in power for a long time, and then we throw them out and we never hear from them again. So the Liberals ran up until 1921. The Liberals haven't had a sniff since. I'm not even sure they still even exist as a party in Alberta. The United Farmers of Alberta win in 1921. They lose in 1935. They're not a political party anymore. The Socreds win in 35. They lose in 71. They kind of linger for a couple of years and they win one or two seats and then they die away. The PCs destroyed their own party within two years of losing the election after 44 years of, of government. Then we look at the NDP. Rachel Nolly is still sitting in office. 10 cabinet ministers are still sitting in office. They got 33% of the vote. So when I make this case that Alberta is a two-party system, I often say Alberta is a two-party system, but there are elements of the UCP that don't believe we're in a two-party system. They, they still believe that this is the conservative dynasty, either Socred or PC, that went back 70 years, and they can just flip leaders and do whatever they want. As long as they don't divide or, or divide significantly, they'll always be in power. I'm not convinced of that. I, I think that the nature of Alberta has fundamentally changed. And you could see that with the demographics of city council. Um, when was the last time there was a conservative who was mayor of Edmonton? When was the last time there was a conservative who was the mayor of Calgary? Uh, we've had progressive mayors pretty much the whole time. So this idea that all it takes is a, is a blue rock to, to become elected, 
if we had an election today, it would be a landslide NDP win. The election's not today. The election's in a year and a half. But I just don't see a path for the UCP to recover. A year and a half seems like a long time, except the NDP were basically defeated about a year out from the 2019 election. Uh, you know, they went through the campaign and they could keep it closer and whatever, but they were not going to win that election a year out. I don't see how this can happen. Are people just going to say, yeah, we had this COVID, 3,000 people died, but it's time to get over that. Or I lost my business or I couldn't visit my grandmother at her funeral. Those memories remain in place. Uh, there are still people who vote against the liberals because the national energy program. That's 41 years old, right? There, uh, when, the, um, when the conservatives, progressive conservatives federally brought in conscription in Quebec in 1917, they were wiped out until the 1960s. So uh, people have long memories about really, really important events. And dare I say, COVID is one of those really big events that has fundamentally changed politics in this province. I have one more one more little thing that I want to try to just explore a little bit before we get into COVID, because obviously that is, as you just said, uh, a, a pivotal moment, I think, in almost everybody's living memory. Uh, it's probably one of the biggest events that any of us will experience. Um, but you talked a little bit earlier about the, the entertainment tax credits uh, and the high-tech tax credits and the back and forth on that. Um, do you think that there's a, a long-term harm that has been visited upon Alberta because of the lack of a steady hand? And you can already see how I'm going to use this to pivot into COVID. Um, but before we get there, just from strictly economics sense, has the erratic choices that this government made have they have they done real harm? Has it been neutral, or is there some sort of positive upswing that I'm just missing? I would say it's not so much erratic, but an overarching emphasis on one sector of the Alberta economy, and that is oil and gas. And I mean that has been a major source of, of wealth in this province for decades. But it's not the only sector of the economy, and more importantly. There are global issues that are fundamentally changing the nature of, of oil and gas. I'm not one of those that believe, you know, we need to keep it in the ground. Let's stop all pipelines. I think there's going to be a place for oil and gas for a very long period of time. But the fact that we have a current government that won't recognize that fact, that fights that fact, I think has damaged our oil and gas sector, uh, because if you, if you say to these global investors, if you pull out, oh, we're going to get you. I'm not sure BlackRock or Casse or uh, Total or any of these large powers that pulled out are all that worried about the province of Alberta. And so I think it's not only not helped that the sector that they think they're helping, I think it's greatly damaged that sector. But it's also greatly damaged every other sector of the economy because the attention of the government is on one thing. Uh, and if you're, let's say, 22 years old and you don't want that sort of future, why would you stay here? The fact that Alberta is losing young people, I think should chill us all. Uh, Alberta used to be a place that people came to. 
the fact that people are leaving, I think, if, if there's anything that should scare the government, it is it is that. And then the question would be, well, why are they leaving? Is it a lack of economic opportunity? Sure. I mean, people move to where economies are. But is it something that the government itself is doing and contributing to? I think that's also a, a problem. So it's not so much the erratic uh, behavior. I think it's really the overarching focus on one sector of the economy, while there are global forces that are changing that one sector of the economy. We've certainly seen there's been a lot of, and I mean, you listed off a couple there. There's been a lot of investment firms uh, and financial bodies that have aggressively divested of uh, investment in particularly oil and gas. Uh, and I, it, it certainly doesn't seem to me that by, by threatening to, I don't know, fight Netflix, uh, that they're, they're encouraging. Well, ask yourself about the ads we've got in Times Square in New York. And who do you think the audience is for those ads? Are people looking at those ads and going, you're right, I'm going to go to my gas station and demand that we have Canadian oil in our gasoline. You don't know where it comes from. It could very well be Canadian. After all, we export a lot of oil to, to the U.S., but it could be American oil or it could be some other country. You simply don't know. Those ads in Times Square aren't aimed at New Yorkers. They're aimed at Albertans. Let, let's be clear about that. And yeah. it's the idea that we are fighting on your behalf, and I'm going to show you how we're fighting. And uh, so I think that's, that's what's at play here. I will also say that at least among the large oil and gas companies, they know what's going on. They are already working on transitions. They are working on finding out ways of lessening the intensity of their emissions. They are working with the Trudeau government. These are very smart business people. These are very smart scientists. And I think the provincial government is out of step with its own industry on that matter. I mean, you rail against the carbon tax. Think about that famous photo of the press conference with Rachel Notley announcing that. And there's Murray Edwards and there's Steve Williams and there's other major players who were working with environmental groups in the background at private dinners to prepare for the climate leadership plan. Then we have a new government just ripping that apart and saying, no, we're going to fight on your behalf. Now, the juniors and the smaller companies and the midsize companies that may only operate in Alberta and Saskatchewan, they may have a different perspective. And I know they have a different perspective. But those that operate throughout North America or throughout the world, they know what's going on. Uh, they know that public opinion is changing. They know that financial decisions are changing. They know that insurance companies are getting skittish and they are responding in kind. I'm not sure the provincial government, because they have a different set of incentives have fully grasped um, what's at stake here. Let's move to COVID. Um, and if we can do this as sort of a, a linear time frame, I think that that is, is helpful because one of the, the problems that I think we have in Alberta is that because, I mean, this, this weekend was oddly quiet in Alberta politics. And I think everybody kind of went, whoa, that feels weird. Uh, because for the last two and a half, three years, it has been a rapid fire succession of 
issue after scandal after issue after scandal after issue after scandal. Um, but when it comes and I, to... And I think the chronology is absolutely critical here because Kenny, in his public pronouncements, screws up some of the chronology. Uh, and I will also say, because I've, I've written about this, there have been parts of COVID that the Alberta government handled quite well. Uh, and that needs to be part of the story as, as well. But okay. chronology is, is absolutely critical here because what is going on is the fourth wave, um, not the first, second or third. And we need to put that into context. Okay. So to start with, when we first heard of the, the reports of a virus coming out of uh, Wuhan, um, what were your immediate impressions from the time that the conversations started to take place in Alberta? So these stories had started to come out sort of in the international press, or there might be an article or two, you know, late, you know, mid CBC broadcast or, you know, page seven of the Globe and Mail throughout December and January. And then they started to escalate because we saw what was going on in, in Italy in, in February. And it looked like everything came to a crunch um, in the span of a handful of days in, in March. And I think the real sort of trigger was a combination of events in, in the United States that really seemed to put the, the emphasis on. And it was uh, the cancellation of the NBA season. It was the discovery that, that Tom Hanks had acquired uh, COVID. And you could just see like, oh my God, this is getting bigger and bigger. And then we get the, uh, the, the addresses to countries, you know, that Trudeau did, that, that Trump did. Uh, and then you get, you know, an, an actual TV address by, by Jason Kenney. And I think there was a sense of this is brand new, even though it was, we've had infectious diseases before, we've had respiratory diseases before. I think there's a lot of parallels with what we did with SARS. There's a reason we called it COVID, you know, 19. Um, but at the same time, it just, for the great members of the public, this was an immediate emergency that we were simply unprepared for. And I think the, the government of Alberta in particular handled that quite well. They, they realized the, the severity of this. And when Kenny went on TV and talked about that, there was a sense of this is fundamentally different than anything we've ever dealt with. And we need to take drastic measures and we need to do it quick. And he did. He brought in probably the harshest lockdown provisions we've had throughout COVID. Um, huge capacity uh, drops for businesses, schools. I mean, we were at Mount Royal. We had a weekend to go from in-person to remote delivery. And I remember how I spent that weekend. Um, then we started to get calls for, you know, flights to end. And it's just like the entire society seemed to come to a, a stop in a couple of days. And then we looked at Alberta over that first wave, which in the first wave, we're looking roughly at the spring of 2020. So March, April, May, and there is devastation in New York City. There is devastation in Quebec. There is devastation in Ontario, largely in long-term care facilities. The death toll in Quebec was outrageously high. Uh, Ontario was also high, but it was concentrated amongst the most elderly, most vulnerable people. And when you look at Alberta, the numbers were really small. And I think in retrospect, and even like right when it was happening, you could say Alberta is handling this 
quite well. The KPMG was commissioned to do a report on how Alberta handled it, but they were only to look at the first wave and the report, not surprisingly, said Alberta handled it quite well. An unforeseen event, dramatic action needed to be taken, a sense of urgency needed to be placed. The messaging was consistent and Alberta got through it. Uh, one of the top jurisdictions in the world on the first wave. And then it's like we completely forgot about everything that we did positively. Um, we, we gradually reopened, but the, uh, the summer of uh, 2020, we didn't call it the best summer ever. We didn't reopen everything. We gradually reopened things and it was still pretty restrictive. And the one time that Jason Kenney has really apologized for his behavior in COVID was in response to his handling of the first wave, where he apologized for shutting down businesses uh, unnecessarily, he said. In other words, the best performance that we had in this pandemic, one of the best performances that any jurisdiction had in this pandemic, Kenny ultimately apologized for doing that. Um, that brings us to the fall of 2020. And this is when we start to see patterns of behavior with the COVID response. I think what Kenny did with the first wave is he took all of his uh, political objectives, all of his ideological fundamental principles, and he threw them out the door. And he acted pragmatically, just as Stephen Harper acted pragmatically during the financial crisis. You know, budget deficits, who cares? It's about saving Albertans. And then once we got through that, then the ideology returned. And then we started to see a pattern. And we saw it in the second wave. We saw it in the third wave. And we're definitely seeing it in the fourth wave, where the government acts later than it should compared to everybody else. It brings in measures that are half measures or complicated measures that it then has to change a couple of weeks later. And all of the metrics, hospitalizations, ICUs, deaths, are horrible. Uh, and there's also a pattern of Kenny disappearing right in the midst of when that starts. So back in November of 2020, he went uh, uh, 10 days, two weeks, never heard from him. Uh, then he comes out to speak after every other major Canadian province had brought in greater restrictions. And he wouldn't do that until December. And uh, so I think the second wave is when we saw sort of the, the real Kenny and the real approach, which is so unfortunate because they handled the first wave so, so great. And why that's important is when he's criticized now, he'll often say, but look at the death per capita. Alberta is so much better because he's comparing March of 2020 to today. If you look August to October of 2021, we are the worst by far uh, in, the, in the country. So he's, changed, he's trying to change the narrative and say, well, look at how badly Quebec did. Yeah, Quebec handled the first wave horribly. They've handled the second, third, and fourth quite well. And that's why Premier Legault is sitting at 78% approval rating and Jason Kenney in the teens. It's, it's interesting that you put the pin in at, at around May because that's roughly when, uh, it was at the end of May, that Mr. Kenny stood up in the legislature and he did his whole life expectancy speech. Uh, and I think that it was, it was that point for a lot of people then that, where they started to go, uh-oh, 
um, because to his credit, the, the first wave was handled. I would almost, I, I would, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I would be willing to speculate that the first wave was largely handled by uh, the recommendations of, of public health officials and, and Kenny took those recommendations. And it seems like right around May, uh, that's when he started to say, oh, I've had enough of this. That's when the messaging started to change. And so we didn't hit the second wave for a couple more months. We didn't automatically reopen, but that's when we started to get mixed messages. That's when he started to refer to it as a flu. That's when he talked about, well, look who's died. It's primarily old people. You know, life expectancy is 82 in this province. The average age of death of COVID is 83. Prior to that, there was a lot more discipline in the message. And I think when this is all said and done, and there's going to be study after study of how Canada responded, it's a fa- it will be a fascinating set because we've got one common federal government, but healthcare is within 13 different jurisdictions. And the experiences are so different of those 13 provinces or 10 provinces, three territories. Was it solely policy? Or was it messaging or was it a combination of the of the two? Uh, We do know that there is a higher proportion of vaccine hesitant or vaccine resistant people in Alberta than anywhere else in the country. We knew that pre-COVID. You know, there were lots of stories and lots of data on previous vaccine battles. Uh, And, you know, we've had court cases down in Lethbridge about this. So we knew that that was the condition. Did that still matter? So there's a lot of different variables that will have to be put in place, a combination of policies and messaging. But I think the message discipline, I think you're right, started to erode in in May. Okay. But but the real second wave didn't really kick in until November. If you had to pick a moment where you could say, oh, the wheels came off there, um, because I don't think January 1st, January 1st, 2021, without a doubt. That will remain as bad as the fourth wave is. That is the day that I think Albertans are going to remember because that is, there had been stories over the last week of late December about MLAs leaving the country. And um, you started to go, well, we're seeing vacation photos of these staffers in Mexico. Oh my God, there's this MLA in Hawaii. And, And it was growing and growing and growing. And so Kenny has a special press conference on New Year's Day. Like imagine that, New Year's Day, because he knows this is becoming a big issue. And he is in full, absolute defiance. Um, And he's deflecting to say, the rules were unclear about international travel, which of course they weren't. But more importantly, he said, you know, the buck stops with me. Maybe I didn't emphasize them enough that they shouldn't be leaving. I take full responsibility, but we're not going to do anything. I cannot get rid of my chief of staff. I cannot get rid of Tracy Allard because they did nothing wrong. And it was the full fighting mode, Jason Kenney, the full defiant mode, Jason Kenney. And within a day, there was so much outrage across the province. I said at the time that he united the left, the right, and the center against him over that. Now, whether it was because it was the holiday time or people had, I had Christmas dinner with my wife and my daughter, and that was it. Her her brother lives in Calgary. We didn't go over there. Her best friend lives in Calgary. We didn't go over there. Lots of people stayed at home. And then to hear people leaving, 
the chief of staff, ministers, MLAs, staffers. I think it just, the outrage was palatable in this province. And within a couple days after January 1st, a quiet release was put out to say that um, Minister Allard was, was uh, being demoted. Uh, these people were being removed from caucus. Uh, chief of staff was being fired in a release, not in a defiant statement. And then when they first went public, poor Tyler Shandro and Rick McIver must have drawn the short straws to come out and apologize on behalf of the government. So if I was to pick a moment, because this is right in the middle of the second wave, if you look at the death toll of December and January, it's even higher than what the fourth wave is, although we're starting to get up there. And it was that January 1st press conference that I watched live and I have remembered that since it, since it happened. Do you think part of the problem, and I, wanna, I, wa I do want to continue moving th forward through the timeline a little bit, but one of the things that I, th I feel like, and you can please tell me if I'm wrong, that we've consistently seen from this government is a tendency to go, ah, but technically, um, did, did, we, did we as a province elect a government of um, administrators as opposed to leaders? I don't know about that. Um... There's got to be a point in here uh, when I talk about the political strengths and weaknesses of Jason Kenney, uh, because this really is such a leader-driven government, more so than anything else. And there's a certain point that'll come in there. I think it, what it was, was a government that wanted to have the most optimistic result. And they're looking at data that is disparate. And there's positive data, there's negative data, there's a series of different scenarios, and they systematically chose the most optimistic case over and over again. And think about budgeting. Typically, when you're budgeting, you want to downplay revenue and overestimate expenses. Because if you do it the other way around, and you're wrong, that's when you get large budget deficits. But when it comes to COVID, I think there's this opposite, opposite approach. And whether that is solely about being optimistic and sunny, I'm not sure that's the, the thinking, but I think it's the emphasis on things like personal responsibility uh, and on economic growth um, without looking at the consequences of, of health and restrictions. I think that was a major driver, was the ideological beliefs of, of Kenny. And not just of Kenny, uh, a group of people that are surrounding Kenny that shares those same ideological beliefs, both in caucus and in his uh, premier's office. But that that adherence to the idea of personal responsibility, it's certainly something that we've heard from from Mr. Kenny over and over and over again. Uh, that is that is the crux of all of the scandals that led up to January. Well, and it doesn't extend to the government. Yeah. Right. If you're going to talk about personal responsibility. Um, that January 1st press conference should have been followed by Jason Kenny coming out and apologizing as opposed to sending Tyler Shandro and Rick McIver out. When they did the big flip-flop on coal mining, it should have been Jason Kenney apologizing as opposed to sending Sonia Savage out 
to, to apologize. Uh, and it's not just that they make a decision and are forced by public outrage to reverse course. In that meantime, they demonize and attack anybody who criticizes them in that time period. And that's really what they need to apologize for. And it's not just Jason Kenney, it's all the people in his staff. It is the Matt Wolfs, it is the Blaze Bulmers, it is the Brock Harrisons. And you know, we're, we're gonna come to the fourth wave, but we've saw that throughout, that there'll be criticism and they'll be branded as an NDP hack or an NDP shill. Uh, and you know, you want permanent lockdowns forever and ever. And then they adopt similar policies and there's no recognition that that's what they were advised to do uh, later on. Is, is that a reflection? So of it's, a, the... it's a tone, it's a style and it's a style that we have seen repeated. And remember how we began the conversation about the fight back strategy on oil and gas. They're adopting that same fighting back as it comes to COVID, um, except COVID doesn't respond very good to being yelled at because it's a virus. Uh, so instead, they viscerally attack the people saying we should be more cautious and then realize, geez, those doctors actually have something. Because while there is medical knowledge in Dina Hinshaw's office and Dr. Yao's office, there's other doctors with knowledge too. There's knowledge, there's medical knowledge outside of the department. And I think it's important to, to, to recognize in, in the conversation that when we're talking about medical expertise, there's a reason why people who work in the medical field specialize in specific things. Like if you, if you ask a, a, a plastic surgeon to interpret a complex uh, electrocardiogram, most of them, the, the good ones will say, oh, I can't do that. Uh, and the rest of them will just stare at you like a dog showing a card trick. So it's, I think it's really important to recognize that while Dina Henshaw has her area of expertise, there are people who have spent literally their entire professional lives uh, dealing with and studying areas that are, are deeply impacted by the pandemic. And, and it's that uh, willingness to discredit as opposed to listen that I... I don't know. Do you think that's part of what's gotten us to where Well, we and, and you look at the emergency room doctors. They may not be infectious disease experts, but they are on the front lines of dealing with that. And so I think that is a degree of expertise. It's not the same as understanding how airborne uh, viruses spread and modeling and all those things. But in their certain little world, they have a lens on what is happening and, you know, they're, uh, they're the canary in the coal mine, right? And they should be, be listened to. Same with paramedics, same with nurses, right? Frontline healthcare workers have some degree of expertise, may not be in the issue at hand, but they're understanding the impact that is going on here. So if the short game of the UCP, or in, uh, sorry, Mr. Kenny's office, I should probably say in fairness, if the, if the short game of Mr. Kenny's office is to attack and discredit anyone who disagrees with them in the moment, what are you making of their long game? So this gets to, I think, um, some of the strengths and weaknesses that we have of Jason Kenny. 
Uh, I have been on record as saying, I think Jason Kenney has an awful lot of political skills. I still maintain that. There are people who go, no, he's an absolute idiot. He can barely you know, put two and two together. I'm thinking, no, there are political skills that this man has, but there are huge blinders and there's huge weaknesses. So his skills are in organization. His skills are planning ahead. His skills are mobilizing financial resources. His skills are in the behind the scenes, backroom machinations of, of parties. And the accomplishments were the merging of those two parties. That took political skill. His conquering of the PC party, basically in one afternoon, when he decided to run for the PC party, there were other contenders, and he mobilized buses of homeschool students to walk in and control the youth delegates. It was a show of power. It was a show of organization of financial skill that intimidated the other members. It was the work that he did on behalf of new Canadian communities that allowed the Conservative government to form a majority federally in 2011. I think those are, the fact that he has not been removed as leader of the UCP shows some of his backroom political acumen. And I would not be surprised if he is able to hold on and win a leadership review within that party. I'm not sure it'll be on the up and up, but there will be some sort of review. And I can tell you he is already and has been planning for that and has put things in place to do so. Do not underestimate that sort of backroom mobilization. So those are all the strengths. And as a, and a, a, a man who delivers speeches, he can give the fire and brimstone speech um, with the best of them. He can attack. He has partisan attackers. He, he, those are all, whether you like them or not, you have to recognize those as skills. The weaknesses is he can't adjust a plan. So he brings in the McKinnon report to cut back on salaries of public sector workers, nurses, teachers, professors, doctors, identified. Doctors is identified in that document in September of 2019. Pandemic hits, we're still following the plan. We are going to try to cut doctor's wages in the middle of a pandemic. We wanna cut nurses' wages in the middle of the pandemic because that was the plan. I'm sure he's got a spreadsheet that was developed with calendars. We're gonna do this, this, this at this time. We are going to roll through all of this legislation, you know, at this time. And then COVID hits and you don't get rid of that plan. Uh, another weakness is if you are the fighter, that's how you respond to every issue. And maybe something other than fighting is necessary. He lacks empathy. Uh, and I think that comes out. Doug Ford's popularity in Ontario has risen and fallen throughout the pandemic because people may dislike Doug Ford. They may see him as incompetent or ideological, but there were moments of humanity that came through with Doug Ford. You know, that he seemed to care. He just didn't know how to do it, but he actually cared. I don't think anyone looking at Jason Kenney thinks he actually cares about COVID. Uh, he can't apologize. Ralph Klein, for that was his greatest political gift. He used to say, I stepped on a snake and quickly reversed course. Kenny can't say sorry. He, he's not empathetic. So I think what COVID has done is emphasize and highlight all of the political weaknesses he's had and all of his political strengths 
can't be used in this sort of pandemic. And I think that's the problem that he's he's running into. One of the the ideas that's been been floated around ad nauseum is the idea that if you take a look at the the spreadsheet that you're just talking about, that that almost certainly does exist somewhere. Um, love the mug, by the way. Uh, if you if you take a look at that spreadsheet, it almost seems like Kenny was kind of sort of willing to go. Okay, we have to deal with the first wave, and then everything since then has been. No, I've got these dates written down in my little black book, and we are getting back to these dates come hell or high water. Uh, is that is that at all an accurate read? Yes. That, that, I mean, he, he, that's what he said in the legislature, hell or high water, and apparently hell meant 400 dead Albertans that we were reopening. Um, I think what it, what had occurred with the, re, the summer reopening, you can't explain the fourth wave without understanding what happened in June. So remember I said they looked at the most optimistic data, the most positive data, the most outlying data, because his popularity had been weak prior to COVID, right? If you look at polls in February of 2020, he's on a downward slide, uh, brings in a, a budget deficit that was higher than the NDPs pre-COVID. COVID, his popularity just continued in a down, downfall. Um, between him and Brian Pallister, they were in a race to see who would be at the bottom. He realized the only way out of this was to reopen society, reopen the economy, do it faster, do it quicker, do it better than anybody else. Then people would start to appreciate what he had done. Uh, people started to go back to normal and his political approval would start to, to go up. And that's not what happened. So he gambled everything on that summer reopening and lost and lost badly and is continuing to lose. And when you look back at that press conference, and I know there's a video that's gone viral from clips of, of that June press conference. We're not just saying that with hindsight, we're not just saying in October, oh, yeah, we knew what was going to happen in June. There were people asking those very questions in June. And his response was, we don't have a scenario for that. We don't anticipate that. Uh, you just want us locked down forever. Why do you hate Alberta? Um, and uh, uh, we're, we're good. And this is the most cautious plan in the world. No, it wasn't. Uh, others uh, saw a drop in spring and summer, but they didn't dramatically reopen everything. They didn't decide to cancel testing, tracing. And, and isolation. So I think he banked everything because he knew he was doing poorly in the polls and his own political survival was at stake and he swung for the fences and um, it didn't work very well. Isn't that kind of like though, like if you're planning on having people over for a dinner party and as you're cooking dinner, there's a, a, a stove fire or an oven fire and you just go, Oh, maybe it'll burn itself out before people get here and you, you don't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you'll, you'll, uh, we'll just go outside. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have the barbecue outside. And then you start to see smoke coming out of the kitchen. And maybe it doesn't happen that night. Uh, but maybe there's now permanent damage to your stove. Maybe there's actually smoke damage to your house that occurs not the day of the party, but in the aftermath and the, and the days and, and weeks to, uh, weeks to come. People did go out in July. 
you know, I went out, I'm sure you went out. Maybe we took some restrictions, maybe we didn't. There was so much pent up anxiety after being locked down for a year and a, a bit. Uh, but there were things that the government could have done to, to put on that caution. To be surprised that people stopped getting vaccinated when you said it's over for good. Well, why would I get vaccinated? It's not just yeah. because I was being anti-vaxxer or even vaccine hesitant. What's the point of getting vaccinated if COVID's over, right? That sort of, when we talked about messaging, the messaging was horrible, as opposed to saying, we can gradually reopen some stuff. You know, we're going to have a Stampeders game, but maybe there's going to be 10,000 people there instead of 30,000. You know, we're still going to be testing. We're still monitoring the situation. We think it's getting better, but geez, we've been fighting this for a year. Let's be a bit more cautious. And they weren't. And Saskatchewan, poor Saskatchewan, which has been following the lead of Alberta. I bet you they severely regret that now. How, so here we are today. We saw uh, a fascinating press conference from Mr. Kenny last week uh, where he talked about all of the amazing things that the government has done to uh, encourage vaccination and listed off literally everything except for the, the whole vaccine passports piece, which was, I thought, particularly telling. Um, in the last week, we had over 100 deaths. Uh, and to contextualize that against Mr. Kenny's claims and some of the repeated claims of, of his staffers that it's just a flu, in the 2019-2020 flu season, there were 41 reported deaths, confirmed deaths of influenza. So we almost tripled that in one week last week. What does it take to get this guy to blink? So... There's so much there that we do know that the huge uptake in vaccination rates in Alberta occurred when they brought in the vaccine passport or what they call the restrictions exemption program, because he couldn't call the passport because he promised there would be no passport. But he's tracing it back to the incentive program, the $100 incentive program. I remember, and this is unfortunate, I've been doing too much of this, yelling at my computer, watching these press conferences on September 3rd, when he announced the incentive program, when just days before, Ontario and BC had brought in a vaccine passport and had seen an immediate spike. They hadn't even implemented it. They had simply announced it and there'd be a spike. And he comes out and says, we don't need to do that. We're just going to pay people. Then to come out later and say, yeah, if you go back four weeks, there's been a lot of people taking vaccines. Well, why did he say four weeks? Because four weeks was the time of the incentive program. And it went, you know, kind of like this until the vaccine mandate came in and then it jumped. That's the big spike. But he couldn't admit that because he was told at the time that this was the measure, like that, that this was the one thing that, that did work, that maybe people won't do it to protect themselves. Maybe they won't do it to protect their, their friends or family. Maybe they won't do it for a hundred bucks, but they'll do it to go to a Flames game or they'll do it to go up for dinner. Uh, and again, he was told at the time that this was that this was the proper policy, and, and he didn't. It was at the same press conference when he was talking about how much better Alberta did compared to Quebec and Ontario, because he's going back to March of 2020 as opposed to August of 2021. He, but it, so so the press conference was largely patting myself on the back 
But then there were parts that said, um, well, yeah, Thanksgiving will be a spreader event. Well, if you know that Thanksgiving is going to be a spreader event and it's still late September, maybe we should do something to prevent Thanksgiving from being a spreader event. And yet we're not. Um, there are things that we did before, like shutting down the schools, going remote delivery at the universities, restricting to takeout delivery of restaurants, uh, banning spectators at Flames games. There's things we've done before. Do we wait till October 12th to do that? Do we wait until things have gotten worse again before we do that? Most likely that is what's going to happen here is we'll, there'll be some sort of further restrictions after the ICUs get up there, after more people die and, and, uh, and down the line. And this was in the same conference. He was asked about bringing in Newfoundland doctors. And someone asked, well, the premier of Newfoundland said, stand down, we, we weren't needed. And instead of talking about that conversation from the day before with, with Premier Fury of Newfoundland, he goes back to some phone call he had with the premier a month ago. You know, saying, well, we're not really going to need you until October because October is going to be worse. Well, if October is going to be worse and you know October is going to be worse, shouldn't we be doing things in September? I would think so. Do you think he takes comfort? It seems like one of the things that's kind of happened is as we've progressed through this pandemic, uh, and we've certainly heard this as a talking point from multiple ministers and MLAs, as we've progressed through the pandemic, we've been able to... I'm going to say sketchily expand our capacity to deal with the the sickest of COVID patients. And I'm, when I say sketchily, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that in any way to be derisive towards healthcare workers, but the healthcare workers are the first to say that the quality of care that people are getting in the expanded surge ICUs uh, is not the standard that they would normally be providing to patients in Alberta simply because they don't have the human resources to pull it off. But it seems like one of the things that this government does is they, they expand the capacity and then they go, ah, see, it's no big deal. Is, is that... Am I reading that wrong? You, you, can, you can expand capacity, but as you're right, it's not going to be the same level of care, nor should it be. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect it to be. Is it better? Yes. But is it as good as what we would have had? No, because it is, it's not about a bed. It's about the staffing and equipment that, that goes uh, with, with, with that bed. I think that's the, the important thing. We're now getting this also, this very strange critique coming from some backbench members of the UCP saying, why does a province that is so wealthy have so few ICU beds? Um, there was a horrible article in the Washington Post saying, look at Alabama's got a thousand beds. Why does Alberta only have a hundred? Could you imagine Going back two years, the UCP government saying, we need a thousand ICU beds. I know we only have 80 people in there, but just in case, and we're gonna properly staff that, that, that makes, that's asinine. No government would do that, especially a fiscal conservative government would do that. But now that things are going toward, there's gotta be some finger pointing. And the fact that there were multiple UCP backbenchers saying the same thing on the same day tells me that that was probably that big caucus meeting to determine the fate of, of Jason Kenney. I'm sure that was one of the items that was, that was brought in. Right. Okay. And uh, so, you know, there's elements of that. I will say, we know that Kenny has problems within his own caucus. Vaccine mandates are an 80, 20 issue. Most politicians would go on an 80, 20 issue. 
That's not a polarized issue. A polarized issue is 50-50. 80-20 is a slam dunk, except if the 80-20 doesn't exist in your own caucus, which it doesn't, and we know it doesn't. Um, so he's got problems within his own caucus. Uh, we, we know that. And um, I think that's why he's been allowed to continue on for a couple more months, because the group that thinks he violated his promises by bringing in a vaccine mandate and mass restrictions are upset with him. And the group that thinks he waited too long and blew a month and should have acted quicker. The only thing they agree on is they dislike Jason Kenney, but they are diametrically opposed at the further action of the of the government. And, and I think Kenny is relying on that. Uh, I think he is more concerned about his unity party that he created, his baby, than he is the health and well-being of Albertans. And so when I talk about Kenny's political skills, it is in that backroom fighting. If he's dedicating his time to ensuring that he maintains a victory in the leadership review, that he maintains his leadership of the party, he is not spending that time on how to get Alberta out of a pandemic. One of the things that often gets repeated is the idea that crisis provides opportunities for for political folks, not only in regards to showing leadership, um, but in regards to showing the kind of leadership that they've they're they bring to the table. What with that in mind, what do you think one of the the what are your big takeaways in regards to Jason Kenney's leadership of the province? So there are. And I agree with you. Crisis can either elevate a, a premier or a prime minister, or they can highlight their, their weaknesses. So some of the big U.S. examples were Hurricane Katrina, which, you know, that was pretty much the end of the Bush administration and its failure to, to respond to the uh, New Orleans floods. Or the um, Iranian hostage situation uh, and, and Jimmy Carter. It just highlighted concerns that people already already had. Uh, and I think that's what COVID has done here. It is it has put a spotlight on the leadership style, uh, the types of decisions that Premier Kenny makes. Imagine it uh, Rachel Notley during the Fort McMurray fires was taking a holiday. Would she have ended that holiday to come back to Fort McMurray? I think absolutely she would have. If she hadn't, she would have been pillarized not just by the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement, but by ordinary Albertans. Same thing happened in late August. I do not begrudge Jason Kenney a holiday. In fact, I think he needs more holidays because he's a workaholic with no other interests other than politics, which doesn't give you a very balanced life. But it wasn't just that he was gone. It was that the government was in absolute paralysis when he was gone. And so while Jason Kenney, I think, could survive a leadership review, um, I don't think Albertans are going to forget. And in fact, as, as bad as the sentiment towards the UCP is right now, if they come out and give an endorsement of Jason Kenney, when there is no non I mean, the man is pulling in the teens. If he gets 55, 60, 70% of the UCP, what does that tell the rest of Albertans? If 90% of us think you're doing a horrible job, but the people within his party think he's doing a fine job, I think that is gonna linger and, and, and 
cause them significant problems, even if the party doesn't split apart. And I've had prominent conservatives tell me off the record, or at least not for attribution, Kenny is destroying conservatism for a decade or longer. That any, it's not just losing the 2023 election. It's any future conservative leader is going to be linked back to Jason Kenney, either because you were part of the caucus, you were part of the cabinet, or you provided support for him. Predictions. Does Mr. Kenney survive to the next election? Oh, God. That, that, I've been going back and forth on that almost. I think a lot of people have. And he shouldn't. Uh, I think he should have stepped down yesterday or a week before or a month before that. And even if there is difficulty in who could replace him, it would be launching a restart. Uh, uh, and, and I think that is, that is important. Uh, but this man's whole life is politics. He is an infighter. It, he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the job. He needs the life. He needs the political life. And for me to come out and say, oh, yeah, he's definitely going to lose a leadership review, even if it was on the up and up, and I'm not convinced that it would be, I think he could still survive that. And even if he loses that leadership review, all that does is create another leadership race that he can then run in. So he can start to run out the, the clock. So I'm back. I'm not going to put a prediction down because uh, I think he has cowered the caucus and uh, the caucus can't agree what to do. And would it surprise me if someday, you know, there's a press conference in the atrium announcing he's leaving? No, it would. If we go to March or April of 2022 and he ekes out a majority support, that wouldn't surprise me either. I know I'm not giving you a very good answer, uh, but that's because it's, there's so much at play here. But think about what forced Ed Stelmack to resign or Ralph Klein to resign or Alison Redford to resign. This is so much worse, so much worse. What does it say? I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things about what you said there, uh, to me at least, is that you, in the, in the political calculus of does Jason Kenney survive a, a leadership review or potentially a, a follow-up leadership race, one of the pieces of political calculus that you included in there seemed to be based around the question of how much on the up and up would, would things be. And I'll use words that I know that, that, you, that you probably won't. But there have been serious allegations that have been laid in regards to the methods that Mr. Kenny used to get the leadership in, in the first place. There is an ongoing investigation by the RCMP. The fact that it is, we're now two and a half years into it and we still haven't have any resolution i mean if it was if there was no question nothing bad had happened that that would seem to be a fairly easy investigation it seems like the the longer that these things go on the the more different avenues are being chased down and those avenues only exist because those avenues exist do you think that it's what should Albertans take away from the fact that any political calculus on Jason Kenney's future has to include what rules is he willing to break? Well, this is always one of the issues within party politics, not intra-party politics, but party politics itself. There is no equivalent of an elections Alberta 
or Elections Canada that monitors that. Let me be clear. I don't have a problem with the election results of, of any elections. Uh, they are uh, as, as good and fair because we've got independent arbiters. But the stuff around Kenny and the, and the kamikaze candidate and some of the, the accusations about the leadership race, those are not unique to the UCP. Those have occurred in other leadership races. You know, Brian Mulroney buying cigarettes for homeless people to go into Winnipeg to vote against Joe Clark. You know, party memberships being paid for en masse and busloads coming in. Like this, this occurs, I wouldn't say all the time, but it occurs enough because there's no independent arbiter than the party themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons we're not seeing resolution about the issues around voting kiosks and pin numbers and, and, uh, and, the, and the like is because it's within the party circle. And, and there, there's, a, there's a cone of silence or the people who have made accusations are all people who have been excommunicated from the party. So you can't believe or trust anything that they, they say. And so when I, Alison Redford got 77% of the leadership race. Uh, at a leadership review. And within not very long after, she was forced to resign. Same with St Ed Stelmack. And it's because there was a lot of arm twisting. Certain delegates were allowed to vote. Certain delegates weren't allowed to vote, right? That goes on with a, with a leadership uh, review. Uh, there are 25 ridings held by, non, uh, held by the NDP. How hard would it be to gain control of a constituency association in one of those ridings? You're not going to win the election uh, in, in, uh, in parts of Edmonton, but it's not about winning the election. It's about having enough votes at a leadership review. So that's what I say about, you know, not necessarily are the results going to be shifted, you know, through some computer chicanery. No, it's who gets to vote, who doesn't get to vote. That's that's what I'm that's what I mean, okay. as opposed to because apparently in the caucus meeting, there was a vote of non-confidence, but it got tabled because people wanted a secret ballot. I think that was a wimp out. I think if you want to challenge the leader, you stand up on your own two feet and you, you say so. But a leadership review, it should be a secret ballot. So uh, we'll we'll see. What do you give the UCP's odds of survival to the next election? Because there has been, we've already seen a couple of MLAs who have been excommunicated. Uh, we've certainly seen more than a few, some of them very high profile, who have repeatedly spoken out against Mr. Kenny uh, with consequences. Um, how, and, and we're seeing some fascinating rumors around some older political figures potentially making comebacks. Do you, do you see the UCP surviving all the way through to the next election? So a colleague of mine, Bruce Foster, myself, we've done some academic work and then we wrote a couple op-eds looking at the nature of conservative parties, both federally and provincially, especially in Alberta, but in Saskatchewan and BC as well, splitting apart, coming together, splitting apart, coming together. It's a, it's a common trait that we've seen. We've tried to explain why, why that is. We published an op-ed in the summer of 2019 so several months after the big victory for the UCP saying there's fissures in this party, whether it can hold together. And I think those fissures, I think, were accentuated by, by COVID and became more exploited by COVID, but they existed at the time. And I had this conversation with another keen political observer yesterday that it may have been tactical political brilliance to unify that party, but it may have been a strategic error as well. 
because you have brought in essentially two incompatible groups into one party that share only one view, and that is to keep the NDP out, right? That is sufficient to mobilize when you're in opposition. That's significant um, incentive to keep together during the campaign to remove you know, uh, the NDP. But now you're in power. And then you start to see those divisions. And you look at the, the anti-COVID restrictions letter. And you look at who has been kicked out of the UCP caucus. And you look at who showed up for the, you know, the uh, Sovereign Alberta press conference. They're all wild rosers or what were wild rose ridings. You look at um, you know, the, 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 the people in, in Calgary, um, very different models. So what would the situation, it's almost counterfactual. Could Jason Kenney as leader of the peace, a reunify or a rejuvenated PC party, could they have won election in 2019? Could they have swept most of Calgary as the UCP did? Could they have won some of the satellite seats around Edmonton, the Sherwood Parks, the Ladukes? Uh, could they have won Airdrie or Okotoks, Red Deer, Fort McMurray? Could they have formed government with 50 to 52 seats uh, and let a wild rose rump win 10 to 12 to 14 seats? How different would the COVID response be if you had those anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-restriction MLAs in the legislature but outside of the governing party. It's a really interesting counterfactual to, to start to understand. Just like Rachel Notley wins re-election in 2019 for some way and gets hit with COVID. What would be the response? Absolutely, there'd be anti-maskers, uh, anti anti-vaxxers, the whole like, that, that demographic is not gonna ship. But they wouldn't be sitting in her caucus so how does that change behavior? So these counterfactuals start to really understand things. I don't know if the UCP can hold together. The question is, is it just a couple people that leave and become independents or is it a big movement outside of the, the party? It's a tough party to govern. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that Kenny's still there is maybe he's the only one who can personally keep them together. You know, that a lot of the COVID announcements sound and act and look like compromises within his caucus. So maybe he's the only one to do that. So I think the internal politics of the UCP is a big question mark, whether the party survives till the 2023 election. Do you think it survives after the 2023 election? I, I, at this point, I, it would be a surprise if Rachel Notley is not elected in 2023. I, I think the issue of COVID is so big so magnifying that the, um, you know, the Mulroney government was in the low teens before he resigned and Kim Campbell came in. Um, Kim Campbell didn't lose the 1993 federal election. You know, that was a legacy of, of Brian Mulroney and the GST and various other things. Uh, I think the same thing is at play here. The question is, is Notley going to be fighting the United Conservative Party? Is she going to be fighting a United Conservative Party that has a separate, more radical, right-wing alternative Conservative Party? Well, we'll have to see. But I don't know how a party that's in the teens can all of a sudden turn around and get 50% of the vote. 
you know, with, with uh, the, the death toll that we've already seen that we're going to continue to see. And with no positive record, as I mentioned at the opening, outside of COVID. Okay. Like predictions, predictions on the future of Jason Kenney are hard. Predictions on the 2023 election are not. I'm sure people will replay this tape if I'm wrong. If, if I'm right, they'll go, well, of course. Do you think we'll see any sort of, I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but do you think we'll see any sort of enhanced restrictions going forward? Or do you think Kenny's just going to... No, I, I do think we're going to see some. I don't know about where you're working and living and talking to, but the rumors are absolutely rife around our campus that we're going to be going remote delivery or the University of Calgary is going to go remote delivery. Uh, AHS people are talking about, you know, ending dine-in at, at restaurants. The people at the Flames are wondering if they're going to have fans come October. Uh, and, I mean, the evidence is, is usually uh, threefold that as bad as things are, the government is talking about how they're going to be worse. And the government has said, we will not do that. And then wait three weeks and then they, they do that. So uh, I would not be surprised at all if I, and I would put it, you know, 80, 20, 90, 10, that we'll have some form of heightened restrictions either before Thanksgiving or possibly right after Thanksgiving, after we've seen, you know, it's like putting in restrictions after Easter weekend, which is what and we've done in the past. Last, last request for a prediction. Um, do you think we're going to see another restricted Christmas for everybody? Are we going to see a restricted Christmas for everybody but UCP MLAs? Uh, <laughs> I think that's going to be one of the calculations about bringing in tougher restrictions in the month of October so that we can have fewer restrictions uh, come come Christmas. I think there will still be restrictions at Christmas time, but I think there'll be the ones that are kind of in place already, such as, you know, vaccine mandates and, and things like that. I don't think we're going to go down the line of, you know, preventing multiple family gatherings in, in homes and, and, and things like that, it, because there is still positive news. Like, let's not be so pessimistic here. The vaccination rates are increasing. The people that are hospitalized and that are in ICU are largely unvaccinated. So I think there's still some, some positive news out of this. Is there anything else that you would like Albertans or Canadians or? Oh, uh, yeah. So while we talked about the unvaccinated filling up ICUs and hospital beds, that does not mean that vaccinated Albertans have not been affected, right? If you're, um, uh, hip replacement surgery has been postponed. If your cancer screening has been postponed, if some of your children's uh, uh, medical updates need to be done, uh, those are all affecting fully vaccinated people or people who aren't allowed to be fully vaccinated. So how do we measure the health impacts on those people? Those are tougher numbers to, to come up with. But what it means is people aren't going to, again, forget the fact that I was going to go in, um, you know, for a hip replacement, which is important for my mobility as a person, and I'm delayed a year or six months. Uh, or I, I missed my cancer screening, so I do it a couple months later, and already it's escalated, and I'm in a worse situation than if they caught it earlier. We're going to hear more and more stories about that. 
I don't know how you track that, but that is a further health impact uh, of this uh, that I think is, is important. I'm notorious for doing this, so I'm gonna do it anyways. I got one more question for you. <laughs> um, one of the things that's been speculated about quite a bit is how many of the things that we're seeing unfold right now are part of some sort of long game. There's been conversations around Bill 1 and the fact that uh, it was the hospitals were just included in the essential infrastructure list. That struck me as profoundly performative because hospitals are already private property. And that's one of the reasons why anytime there's any sort of picketing or union thing, it's always on the sidewalks because they're not allowed to be on on hospital property. But there are a lot of people who have suggested that it is a measure to try to create bubble zones around hospitals for the inevitable protests that are going to occur when Mr. Kenny does resume his calendar or his Excel spreadsheet or whatever it is and starts to go after the wages of healthcare workers. Similarly, there's been plenty of rumors that have been floated uh, about the fact that the, the surgical delays, the, like you just mentioned, are part of a grander scheme uh, to enable the introduction of more privatized clinics. Are there any merits that you see to those, those sort of lines of reasoning? Or is well, that the, just... the, 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 the reason those lines of reasoning are coming through is because that was the game plan pre-COVID. Right. It was to uh, and I'm not necessarily opposed to private delivery of, of health care in a publicly funded system. I think we need to be think of all sorts of creative ways uh, of dealing with with health care. But that was something that the government wanted to do. It wanted to reduce uh, um, uh, wages. It wanted to reduce salaries. It wanted to find efficiencies in the healthcare system. It was gearing up for a labor battle. So that's why when, you know, the amendments to Bill 1 kick in, of course, that's where people are going to, to go. I think, I'm not going to rule that out, but I think it was a reaction. It was a reactionary. They brought in Bill 1 very quickly because uh, railroads were being blocked uh, as part of Indigenous sympathies towards the, the Wet'suwet'en. And then when the demonstrations, the anti-vax demonstrations came, and critics are going, well, you have this piece of legislation. Why don't you apply them? I think their hand was forced. I think they had to add them. Uh, whether they've got ulterior motives of adding them, well, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. But I think once COVID is over, we will go back to the original playbook, which is a way of trying to cut uh, public wages, public salary. We'll get out of the bad of COVID to a different kind of bad. Fantastic. I love leaving things on an optimistic note. <laughs> um, is there, so first of all, for anybody who's not following you on the Twitter machine, uh, because I hear Facebook's having some problems these days. Um, I'm not on Facebook. Oh, there you go. Okay. Um, for anybody who's on the Twitter machine, uh, where can people follow you and find you? It's, it's not too complicated. It's at Dwayne Bratt. It's my name. That, that's pretty straightforward then. Um, is there anything else you'd like people to, to know or hear? Um, this has been a very tough issue to look at, to try to put a political science lens to, um, because you're, you're part of it. You're living with this. Thankfully, my family's health is fine. We're all fully vaxxed. I haven't had restrictions. 
my daughter was a bit adversely affected involving some medical treatment, but by and large, I'm not one to complain about that. Economically, because of the nature of my job, you know, I can teach remotely, I can teach in person. Financially, I haven't been hit. So I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah, my life has been complicated uh, yeah, by, you know, not being able to go out and eat and all these things. I think those are minor. But when you see what has gone on around you, it, it is tough to be, to separate yourself from society and, and to recognize how, how difficult this is. And uh, I've had conversations with other people trying to analyze this too. And just, this is not like a debate over tax policy. This is not a debate over pipeline policy. This isn't even a debate about climate change. This is literally a life and death issue. And it, uh, it's emotional. And it is important and it is serious and it is, t- uh, uh, I have probably gone off on a limb much longer on this issue than any other issue before. I've had people say, oh yeah, well, he was defending Jason Kenney in the 2019 election. No, what I was saying is I think Jason Kenney's going to win the 2019 election and this is why he's going to win it. This is a bit different. I think he's a horrible premier. Uh, I think he's the worst premier we've had. And Bill Aberhart was pretty bad uh, because of the death toll, that it was foreseeable. And the fact that they did things right. They did things right and have ignored those things since then. That is what is so painful here. And it is the outright defiance that, that bothers me. So I'm probably being more outspoken on this issue than, than any others. And I've, I've, some of the nuance is gone, but I think it's, it's justifiable on this. And, and I feel that, and, and I hate making the analogies to Donald Trump because not everybody is Donald Trump. Not every conservative is Donald Trump. Jason Kenney isn't Donald Trump. But Donald Trump was a bad president. And I was saying he was a bad president, you know, from, from day one. And I still maintain that. And I think um, Jason Kenney's record in COVID, especially the fourth wave, especially the fourth wave, um, he, he deserves to resign. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I think our audience is going to find this, this conversation very... Well, if they can stay till the end, it's a long conversation. We, that's what we do here, though. We do, we do long, long, long form. So they, they, they know what they're getting you know, into. No, West of Center is 30 minutes long. They, there's a lot that they do in 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, we'd like to let it breathe here, though. Um, yeah, thank you again. All right. You're welcome. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we'd ask you to please consider to sign up to be one of our uh, Patreon supporters at our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdowneb. Uh, and if you uh, are listening to the audio version of this podcast, we'd also ask you to leave a rating and a review because that helps us get the podcast into the ears of more people. As always, we want to say a big thank you to our current Patreon supporters. Uh, and we also want to say thank you to everybody who is just listening to this episode today because it's, it's a privilege that you're choosing to spend your time listening to what we're trying to do here. So thank you.